Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. I'm excited to continue our series this morning and this afternoon on the book of Revelation as we'll be studying this millennial reign as described in Revelation, the 20th chapter. And there's essentially four views of this millennial reign, of this thousand-year reign. It's what's known as historic premillennialism. And often when we hear a word like that, we get psyched out, and we do this, and I don't want to learn a new word. It's, if you break it down, it's not that, if you understand the concept, pre means before, millennium, thousand, milli, thousand, ism, the study of. It's the study of the fact, uh, this idea that Christ is going to return to the earth before this thousand-year reign on the earth, premillennialism. We're going to see today that ism is actually for is not so. Historic premillennialism teaches that Christ uh, there's going to be Christ came originally to set up this kingdom and was rejected. Surprisingly, God didn't see that coming, and He was rejected by the Jews. Therefore, we had to go to Plan B and establish the church. And we now live in this church age until uh, the the rapture, uh, which is taught in in, in modern premillennialism or dispensational premillennialism. That's the difference between modern premillennialism and historic premillennialism. Typically, historic premillennialists do not believe in this concept of a rapture, that Jesus is going to come back and rapture the church off the earth. It's going to be this invisible, secretive, snatching away of the church off the earth. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation, and then at the end of that, it's going to be this battle of Armageddon, and Jesus is going to come back and establish this physical kingdom. He's going to restore the kingdom of Israel and restore the temple sacrifices in Judaism till he comes back another time, for, and we enter into the eternal state, or heaven or hell. So that's historic premillennialism, modern premillennialism, which is dispensational premillennialism, and it's called dispensational because it says there's going to be seven ages or periods of time. And that last age or dispensation is this thousand-year reign on earth. It's relatively new. It's relatively American. That ought to give us cause for pause when we discover it's in the last couple hundred years and it's kind of Americanized. We ought to kind of think, is that really? But it's, unfortunately, it's the most common probably view of Revelation 20, of this thousand-year reign. And so it's the one, we're going to look at the major concepts that kind of are shared amongst these different theories, but we're going to look most specifically at dispensational premillennialism because it's probably the one you're most likely to encounter. And 
Dispensational premillennialism also differs slightly from historic premillennialism in its view of Israel and the promises in the Old Testament that were made, the difference between Israel and the church. And dispensational premillennialism can become really political. Pray for Israel and giving the land back to Israel. And so while historic premillennialism, you'll see elements of that, we're going to see going back relatively not long after the church was established, dispensational premillennialism is relatively new. There's also what's known as uh, post-millennialism, that, that Christ is going to come back after the millennium, post, not pre, that He established the church, the church is going to expand to the point that it basically conquers the earth, and almost the, enti- the entire world is converted, these golden ears of peace, and then Christ is going to come back. You know, I wouldn't mind if that was correct. That's the view maybe I hope, I, I wish was true, but it's my study conviction that the Bible doesn't teach post-millennialism. So then there's finally what's known as all-millennialism. I think most of us would be considered all-millennials. We're not talking about uh, what year you were born or if you grew up uh, wearing windbreakers and fanny packs or anything. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about all-millennials. All, think about A, think about atheism. A without theism, God. So all-millennialism, the word makes it sound like you don't believe in a millennium. And I think that's a misnomer. I don't like the term because... All millennials do believe in a millennial reign, as written in Revelation 20. They believe that millennial reign is present, that Christ is reigning over His church, the kingdom that He intended to establish, and He did establish, and that period of time will last until His second coming, which all will be raised from the dead, and all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and will enter into either heaven or hell. And you'll also find many of the early Christian writers held to that view, that the Revelation 20 was symbolic of this reign through the church, through the kingdom. And so these different theories are the result of literalizing a book that was not intended to be taken literal. First verse of that book tells us this is not a book to be interpreted literally. But these views have arisen because people have done that very thing and also have ignored clear, literal passages throughout the Bible that would contradict these ideas of a literal reign on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years on earth. I mentioned that premillennialism is not a new doctrine. In fact, we can trace it back, historic premillennialism, to not long after the church was established. The historian Eusebius, writing just a couple hundred years after the church was established, writes about this man, Serenthus. And you might remember old Serenthus. We talked about him when we studied 1 John. We talked about the context of 1 John... John wrote there was he's combating Gnosticism from the Greek Gnosis, claiming a superior knowledge. They claimed they had knowledge no one else had. And the knowledge was this, that the flesh is pure evil. There's this dual nature the Greeks also taught. And so who you were in the flesh was not who you were spiritually. And so there were moral implications. What you did in the flesh didn't matter. You could live however you wanted. Very carnal. And they denied that God could become man. And that's what John combats as much as anything. They were denying the incarnation. They were denying the humanity and the deity of Christ. That Jesus was Christ and Christ was Jesus. That's the context of that book. And one of the flavors of Gnosticism John was likely addressing was what's known as Serinthian Gnosticism, named after Serinthus. And here he appears again in regards to the book of Revelation. Eusebius writes about him, that he created this doctrine that a kingdom of Christ will be set up on earth and that the flesh dwelling in Jerusalem will again be subject to desires and pleasures 
Being an enemy of the Scriptures of God, he asserts with the purpose of deceiving men that there is to be a period of a thousand years for marriage festivals. He also writes, The doctrine which he, Serenthus, taught was this, The kingdom of Christ will be an earthly one. And as he himself was devoted to the pleasures of the body and altogether sensual in his nature, he dreamed that the kingdom would consist of those things which he desired, namely the delights of the belly and sexual passion, that is to say in eating and drinking and marrying and festivals and sacrifices and the slaying of victims under the guise of which he thought he could indulge his appetites with a better grace. So not very flattering. So that's the agenda, this idea of a physical thousand-year reign on the earth. He wanted to exercise his passions in a kingdom by which he could be carnal. And if you want to know how John likely felt about Serenthus, there's actually a, a church tradition or story by way of Irenaeus, who was quoting Polycarp, who was a pupil or a disciple of John, and supposedly they were entering into a bathhouse, and John was told that Serenthus was in this bathhouse, and he turned around and said, let us flee, lest the bathhouse fall down upon us, for Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. It's like when we talk about, you know, we better leave before lightning strikes us. That's, that's how John likely felt about Serenthus and the things that Serenthus was teaching concerning Gnosticism and maybe even the book of Revelation, this idea of a physical reign on the earth for a thousand years. And so as most of us have done, you got to go to the ver- first chapter of this book. In the very first, it's like people have never read verse 1. It's absolutely astounding. People never read verse 1. When they come to the book of Revelation, we go right to Armageddon in this thousand-year reign, and we never get the context. We never get the preface, the thesis, the introduction. Revelation 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants things which must shortly take place. It says the same thing in the last chapter, chapter 22, verse 6. This book is bookended with that statement, things which must shortly take place, not 2,000 plus years later. And that's emphasized and made even clearer when we consider the fact John was told to do the exact opposite thing Daniel was told to do in his book of prophecy. So much of the imagery in the book of Revelation, John borrows, as we've studied, from Daniel and Ezekiel. John revealed what Daniel sealed. And so there's a close connection and correlation between those two books describing some of the same empires and that when the eternal kingdom of God will be established. And John was told, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is at hand. It's about to happen. Don't put it on the shelf. Don't seal it up. Daniel was told, seal up the words of your book. For the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. The time is not at hand. Many of those events were going to happen a few hundred years later. Those empires rising to power. So seal it up, put it on the shelf. John's told to do the exact opposite. Don't seal it up. Don't put it on the shelf. Why? The time is at hand. Surely that means then... The things John writes about are not a few hundred or a few thousand years later, but are going to happen immediately after he wrote those things. Premillennialists also seem to be oblivious to the fact this letter, this book, was written to a specific audience. And they were promised blessings if they heard and heeded or kept the words of that book. If these were things that can only be kept 2,000 years later, concerned events 2,000 plus years later, what's the message for them? John to the seven churches in Asia. He names them. We studied them last Sunday. First century Christians, seven churches in Asia Minor who were enduring tremendous tribulation and persecution and needed hope and encouragement and inspiration to overcome. That's the key word. To stay faithful in this victory with Jesus, even if they died. They needed that in the first century. 
Not events 2,000 plus years later that had no relevance for them. In fact, John identifies himself in this first chapter as a companion in this tribulation, in this persecution, and in the kingdom of Christ. According to John, who was inspired to write the book of Revelation, the kingdom was in existence in the first century. And they were, he and his audience were members of it in the first century. Not a future kingdom, a kingdom that was present right then. What we're going to see today is the book of Revelation refutes premillennialism and this idea of a future kingdom. Shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to the servant John. Apocalyptic, symbolic. John tells us in the very first verse, do not interpret these visions and these signs and these symbols literally. It's symbolic. When we attempt to do that, like premillennials do, we will veil, not unveil or reveal the truth contained in the book of Revelation. John makes it clear up front that this is a figurative book. And think about why it was written in figurative language. Imagine you're a Christian and you get caught by a Roman official with the book of Revelation. And it's not in figurative symbolic language. It's very clear the Roman Empire is the beast that God is going to destroy and judge and overthrow. How do you think that would go over? It was designed brilliantly to conceal the truth from unbelievers and reveal the truth and these symbols they were familiar with, the Old Testament, various language, to believers. And so this theory teaches, looking specifically more at dispensational premillennialism, but it shares elements with the others, this theory teaches that the Old Testament prophets predicted a restoration of national Israel in the Jewish system and animal sacrifices, that Christ came, His original purpose was to reestablish the throne, the kingdom of David. And yet, surprising to God, unbeknownst to God, the Jews rejected Him. And He was powerless to set up the kingdom He came to establish. And therefore, He set up the church instead as an interim measure. This theory teaches God failed. Christ failed. Do I need to comment on that? Do I need to say anything about that? We have just disproven premillennialism in five minutes. We could stop right now and offer the image. I never know the hearts and minds. We get our songbooks out and be done right now. You know I'm not going to do that. The day I give a five-minute sermon, especially on a subject like premillennial, it might be the sign of the times. But it argues the church was not predicted. It wasn't foretold. And the church then is not the same thing as the kingdom. They're separate institutions. So we're now in this church age. It's going to last from Pentecost till the rapture. And that's not a word you'll find in the Bible. You won't find the, the word rapture in the Bible. Now this idea that those who are living will be caught up to meet Him in the air, that is taught, 1 Thessalonians 4. So rapture means snatched up. We're, those living are going to be snatched up in that way. But this idea that Old Testament saints from Pente- or, uh, New Testament saints from Pentecost till the Lord's return are going to be resurrected, and those living in the church are going to be snatched up secretly, and nobody else is going to know anything about it, that's not taught. Anywhere in the Bible. You won't find that term anywhere in the Bible. But yet they believe there's different variations of that. There's what's known as pre-trib and post-trib. Pre-trib means that the rapture is going to happen before this great tribulation. Those who are post-trib believe that the rapture is going to occur after Christians in the church endure that seven-year great tribulation. Most are pre-trib. It's convenient. It's appealing because you get to avoid the seven... If you're in the church, you get to avoid the seven-year great tribulation. 
During this time, you have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. We're going to talk about what they say those things are, even though we studied that with Seth in context Wednesday night. The Antichrist, this world dictator, is going to rise up. It's going to begin this seven-year tribulation. He's going to sign a defense pact with Israel. And then three and a half years in, he's going to set up a statue in the temple in Jerusalem that's been rebuilt of himself and make people worship it. And the last three and a half years are going to be a time of intense distress and suffering. And at the end of that seven years is going to be the Battle of Armageddon. You hear a lot about that. They even made a movie about that. Uh, not exactly this Armageddon. 300 million soldiers will fight in the Valley of Megiddo. It's going to be such severe fighting. The book of Revelation, there's a, there's a text that talks about blood being up to the horse's bridle. That's symbolic, but they say that's literal. And so over this valley that stretches over 100 miles... Somehow, there's going to be blood from this fighting up to the horse's bridle that deep. That's literally impossible. Think about how many humans that would take over, over 100 miles in this valley to get blood up to the horse's bridle. But yet, they say that's what's going to happen. As cities are destroyed by nuclear bombs. Before man can destroy himself, Christ is going to return with his saints and slay these soldiers and take the beast and the false prophet and cast them in the lake of fire, and bind Satan for a thousand years. And then Jesus is going to set up a physical kingdom, national Israel, restore Judaism, on the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Now all the Old Testament saints from before Pentecost are going to be resurrected. The separate resurrection. 144,000 Jews are going to be converted. They're going to convert multitudes of people. And those that are converted are going to have mortal bodies in this kingdom. Why? Why are they mortal instead of immortal? Well, because they need to have kids, because Satan's going to be loosed for a little season after this thousand years. And people like Hal Lindsey, who are very influential in these theories of premillennialism, they're Calvinist. And you can't have people in the kingdom falling from grace. So we have to have children that are going to be deceived when Satan's loosed for a little period after this thousand years. You see the type of nonsense you get when you try to merge multiple false doctrines together? At the end of this millennium, Satan's going to be loose for a little period. Then there's going to be the resurrection of the wicked, another resurrection, a separate resurrection that will occur. Satan will be cast into eternal punishment. The great white throne judgment will occur. The righteous will go to heaven. The wicked will go to hell. This theory has four comings of Jesus, four resurrections, four judgments. Way too many when you compare that to what's clearly taught in Scripture. So I want to spend a good deal of time on this idea. Instead of going completely in chronological order, we're going to take the, this idea of postponement, that the church isn't the kingdom and wasn't foreknown by the prophets, and this idea of a literal thousand-year reign on the earth, and we're going to talk about that this morning. And we'll talk about some of those other details, the rapture, the battle of Armageddon, the tribulation this afternoon. But we're going to undercut this theory this morning. We're going to strike right at the heart at what I believe is the most blasphemous and heretical elements of this theory, and show why it cannot be. Before we even get into, is there a rapture? We're going to show why this is not possible. Why you cannot harmonize it with the Scripture and with the character of God. If the church was an emergency, if it was an interim measure, then it means the church was an accident. And not God's original plan. Not God's eternal purpose. I can't emphasize enough, I can't find the words to emphasize enough the error of that doctrine. Premillennialism demeans and discards and trivializes the gospel of Christ, the church of Christ, Christianity itself. It makes God impotent instead of omnipotent. 
and omniscient. My God does not fail. My Jesus does not fail. It's blasphemous. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, we've studied this with Jason, this manifold wisdom of God that's been expressed, hidden in God, made known by what? The church, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church was the eternal purpose of God. Not an accident. Not plan B. It's the most beautiful and wonderful institution the world has ever seen. Was God's eternal purpose thwarted by mere men? Is Ephesians false? This theory downgrades the church to the insignificant place in history as an afterthought or a parenthesis, a parenthetical period. The Bible tells us Christ shed His blood for the church. Did Christ shed His blood for an accident? The Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. If premillennialism is true, then the marriage between Christ and His church was a shotgun wedding. This doctrine undermines the credibility of the prophets and John the Baptist and Jesus Himself. John the Baptist and Jesus both preached the thesis of their preaching, the kingdom is at hand. It's going to happen soon. It's going to be established soon. In fact, Jesus said in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. When He says the time is fulfilled, that means the time the prophets foretold, the time they predicted Daniel in the days of these kings or Caesars, the Roman Empire between 63 B.C. and 476 A.D. Daniel 9 gets even more specific, the exact year. The time was predicted. The time the church, the kingdom would be established was foretold. And he says it's being fulfilled. That means the prophets, according to Jesus, predicted a first century establishment of the kingdom. Not a 21st century establishment of the kingdom. The time is at hand. And if it wasn't established then, then Daniel and John and Jesus are off by 20 centuries. At least. If you accept premillennialism, you have to believe the kingdom that was at hand got out of hand and the church was established instead. Mark 9 verse 1, Jesus said to this audience, truly I say to who? You, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. How do we harmonize that with the theory of premillennialism? There's three options. Jesus was mistaken or lied. The implication of that. Or there are people still alive today who are 2,000 years old. I'd love the names and addresses of those people, if you can provide them. Or Christ established the kingdom during their lifetime. They saw it come with power. So if the kingdom was postponed, where are the prophecies that predicted postponement? All these prophecies foretold when it would come, when it would be established. Where are the postponement prophecies in the Bible? When did the prophets or John the Baptist or Jesus ever indicate postponement? When did omniscient God, who knows all things and sees all things, ever indicate postponement? Where in the New Testament is a prophecy of a restored Israel and restored... In fact, what the New Testament teaches is the exact opposite of that. Don't you dare add Judaism to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you dare go back to the shadows when you have the substance. Where does the New Testament ever teach a restored Jewish system and a rebuilt temple and rebuilt animal, restored animal sacrifices in place of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ? 
If something like the destruction of Jerusalem that we're going to study this afternoon in Matthew 24 was predicted and foretold, you would think a restored Israel and a rebuilt temple and a restored animal sacrifices would be taught. If they were guided into all truth, why weren't they guided into the truth of a restored physical Jewish theocracy? Where is that taught in the New Testament? The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 12, verse 28, Therefore, let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom then in the first century that cannot be shaken. It's an eternal kingdom. Daniel 2. Everlasting kingdom. Eternal kingdom. It cannot be shaken, taken, or terminated. Jesus established the kingdom He preached about so often in His parables. And that kingdom is the church. Matthew 16, he tells Peter, on this rock I'll build my church, the truth, the confession, the belief, the faith that he's the Son of God. And he said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He uses church and kingdom interchangeably. Same institution here. He gave Peter the keys by allowing Peter to open the door by preaching the gospel, preaching the admission requirements, how to enter in Acts chapter 2. Those who accepted, those who obeyed the gospel were first to be admitted into the church, into the kingdom. He gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. Did Jesus give Peter the keys to the wrong building? If the kingdom and the church aren't the same institution, then when Peter used those keys to unlock the door of the church, he used the keys in the right... He was breaking and entering the church. Did Peter use those keys that Jesus gave him? Premillennialism would say those keys have been unused for 2,000 years. If Peter used those keys... The church, the kingdom is in existence and premillennialism is wrong. Jesus said in the Great Commission to tarry in Jerusalem to the disciples because you're going to be endued with power from on high. At the ascension, Acts 1.8, you shall receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In the very next chapter, chapter 2, the birthday of the church, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Mark 9.1, you will see the kingdom come with power. And that happened in Acts chapter 2. Therefore, the kingdom has come. The kingdom has been established. What did Peter preach in that sermon in Acts 2? He's convincing a Jewish audience, you've rejected, you have crucified the Son of God. And he offers them the proofs, the miracles of Jesus, the prophecies Jesus fulfilled, the ultimate proof, the empty tomb, His resurrection from the dead. And he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. It didn't catch God off guard. It was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The eternal purpose of God. We go to Isaiah 53. Perhaps no clear prophecy to describe what the Messiah would suffer and be rejected. Exactly what Jesus endured. Makes it clear. God saw this coming. God sent His Son to earth to die. That was the plan all along. Israel's rejection was foretold all along. Think about whenever Jesus told the disciples that He was going to Jerusalem to die. How'd they react to that? How'd they respond? How'd Peter respond to that? Likely because he has the same misconception that all the Jews had about a reign on the literal throne of David that would kick the Romans out of Judea. Same reign that Jesus would rebuke people today for looking for. What did Jesus tell them? What would Jesus tell people today who are looking for a physical kingdom on earth? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's the problem. 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Man's greatest need is not for a permanent home on this earth. We need to quit thinking like that. But for an eternal home with God and His kingdom in heaven. Remember when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper? What did He say? In Matthew 26, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So if we can see the Lord's Supper being observed, the kingdom exists. Is the Lord's Supper being observed? It's going to be observed this morning, isn't it? And every Sunday morning for the past 2,000 years, on the first day of the week for 2,000 years, we see it in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, in various places, the Lord's Supper, communion being observed. Therefore, the kingdom exists. The Old Testament prophets made it so clear that the Christ would suffer, that there would be a cross before a crown, that Jesus could call His disciples foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets? He expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. would have loved to have heard that. And many still need that exposition today. Remember when John the Baptist told, called Jesus the Lamb of God? He looked at Jesus, behold the Lamb of God. That's referring back to all the imagery in the Old Testament, all the shadows. What, what, were, what purpose was the Lamb in the Mosaical system? It was a sacrifice to shed His blood. The shadows we see throughout the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Christ tell us that His rejection, the shedding of His blood, was not a surprise. It was the plan all along. Those shadows looked forward to that. He would purchase the church with His own blood, bring the kingdom into existence with His own blood. Therefore, it wasn't a surprise. It was the plan all along. The new covenant to ratify, to be ratified by the blood, by the shedding of the blood, was foreknown, was the plan all along. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The prophets simply do not allow a crown without a cross. The Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled exactly as omniscient God intended them to be. Not a single one of them had to be postponed. Yet premillennialism says that when Christ comes back the third time, to the end of the battle of Armageddon, he will establish a literal physical kingdom on the literal throne of David in the literal city of Jerusalem. If Revelation 20 teaches that, and it's the only place that teaches this thousand-year reign on earth, why in a book of symbol, symbolic language that's not literal, is that the only place we find that doctrine? Why don't we find it anywhere else in the Bible? Why don't we find it in clear, literal teaching in the Bible? When Peter talks about the last days in Acts 2 in that sermon, he says all these prophecies are being fulfilled about the last days. I believe the Christian age, the last day of time, it's the last days, he says, being fulfilled right now. If premillennialism is true, Peter was wrong because the church age would be the second to last dispensation, the second to last age before the last age, the thousand-year reign on earth. Is it the last days or not? Premillennialism also maintains that the physical nation of Israel is the recipient of the promises made throughout the Old Testament. Not the church or Christians now, Jew and Gentile are the recipients. that They'll say it's literally the physical nation of Israel. But the Bible clearly teaches God is no respecter of persons. 
doesn't make distinctions between people now on the basis of ethnicity. The promises made to physical Israel in the Old Testament were either fulfilled or forfeited a long time ago. For example, the promised land. That promise was fulfilled. We read about that in Joshua 21. That promise was also conditional, contingent upon their continued obedience. They forfeited that promise that ultimately in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. The prophecies concerning the reestablishment of national Israel and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple were fulfilled during the return after Babylonian captivity. Those promises were either already fulfilled or they were forfeited by disobedience and faithlessness a long time ago. Many of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the physical return of the Jews after captivity were shadows that look forward to their ultimate spiritual fulfillment in the church of Christ, in which both the Jew and Gentile alike are one in Christ. For example, many premillennialists will say, well, Amos 9, 11, and 12 predicts the rebuilding of the temple, and with that, the restoration of the sacrificial system. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. But it's interesting, in Acts 15... James gives us an inspired application of that prophecy. He quotes it. He quotes Amos chapter 9. Right after Peter has just given a report about Gentiles being included in the kingdom, in the church. He gives that report and he quotes, After this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. So that the rest of mankind, the Gentiles also, may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does all these things. So when he quotes Amos 9, what does James apply it to? The fulfillment of that prophecy, the rebuilding of the temple, the restoration of national Israel, he applies it to the church of Christ. That's the fulfillment. You know, frankly, the concept of a restored Judaism and the sacrifices is hard to fathom in view of the entire New Testament, specifically the books of Romans and uh, Galatians, books that we've studied recently here, the book of Hebrews. How anyone could read those books and think that the animal sacrifices are going to be brought back, it's hard to fathom. The words kingdom, church, Israel, now all refer to the same group of people, the saved. The house of God, which is the church of Christ, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Galatians 3, only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Yet premillennialism would bring circumcision back with the Mosaical law. The church today is the Israel of God. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. And so when you examine each of these proof text prophecies, which we certainly don't have time to do this morning, I'll give you a summary of what you're going to find. Either a return to Palestine from Babylonian captivity, that's often the immediate context of those prophecies, or a restoration of the true Israel, the Jews, spiritually through the church, looking through that shadow to the substance of the church of Christ. That's what those prophecies are about. These prophecies have to harmonize with each other. The Bible was inspired by God. It can't contain any mistakes, any contradictions. So these prophecies have to all harmonize together. And they have to harmonize not only with other prophecies, but with other clear teaching in the Bible. And so whenever you go to a complicated text that's figurative, like the book of Revelation, it's very challenging. 
you interpret that in light of, in view of the clear text about Christ coming and about the resurrections and all those things we're going to study this afternoon. You approach those hard passages with the, if your interpretation of this complicated passage contradicts what's clearly taught throughout Scripture, your interpretation of this is wrong. It needs to be adjusted based on these simple, straightforward teachings throughout the Bible. If all these prophecies are literal, then how do we interpret the prophecies that say David is going to reign over Israel forever? Is David going to reign over the kingdom or is Christ going to reign over the kingdom? If those prophecies are literal, then David has to dethrone Christ if we're going to take it all literal. We harmonize these prophecies by understanding type and anti-type, shadow and substance. David ruling on his throne over Israel was a type, a shadow of Christ ruling on his throne over spiritual Israel, the church of Christ. And if Christ now rules on David's throne, which is God's throne, the kingdom prophesied is the church of Christ, and premillennialism is wrong. If all these prophecies are literal, and David is going to sit on his throne over Israel forever, on the throne of David in Jerusalem, is the throne of David preserved somewhere, physically? Are we going to find that somewhere? I mean, is he literally going to sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem? Where's the throne? When Jesus talked about the scribes and Pharisees sitting on Moses' seat, none of them interpreted that to be they literally sat on Moses' seat. That had to be a big seat for all of the scribes and Pharisees to sit on it. They had to do a lot of rotating. If David's going to sit on his throne forever, but Christ is also, maybe they're going to take turns. You know, move over, Dave. The Jews did not believe Moses' seat was literal. They understood that was symbolic. That was figurative language. Throne means sovereign power. That's all that means. Rule, governance. Just as God raised David up to rule over a kingdom in a place of authority and power, so also Christ has been raised up to sit on a throne to rule over His kingdom with power and authority. That's all that's meant by Christ sitting on the throne of David. Christ is now sitting on that throne. Peter makes that clear in that sermon going back to Acts 2. Talk about how he foresaw, quoting from the psalmist, the resurrection. If he foresaw the resurrection, guess what else he foresaw? The rejection, the death, the burial, the entire gospel was foreknown. And the whole purpose of that was he would raise him up to sit on the throne. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God. Sounds to me like Christ sits on that throne already. That it was foreknown that he would go to the cross on the way to the crown. On the way to the throne. Then he goes on to say, and quote here, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Premillennialists would have Jesus reigning, sitting on his footstool, instead of reigning from his throne in heaven. Luke 1, the angel told Mary concerning Jesus, God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, the church, and of His kingdom, there will be no end. And that's exactly what God did. That's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. Notice Ezekiel 37, verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall all walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. He goes on to say, my servant David shall be their prince or their ruler, their leader forever. 
Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant. If this is literal, David is ruling over Israel forever, not Christ. Even premillennialists admit David here is not physical David, not literal David, it's Christ. This is a messianic prophecy of Christ. David on his throne was a type of Christ ruling on his throne. The important thing here is not the physical location of the throne, it's the fact of authority and power and reigning over a kingdom. And if the antitype is superior to the type, if the substance is superior to the shadows, it shouldn't surprise us that Christ's throne in heaven is superior to David's throne in Jerusalem on earth. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 1, verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. The prophets spoke in various ways. The Bible speaks, God speaks in various ways, and we see that. Not all prophecies are literal. They're often symbolic. We see figures of speech throughout the Bible. In fact, when we did a series on hermeneutics, how to study the Bible, how to properly interpret the Bible, we dedicated one sermon, one study to figurative language because there's so much of it in the Bible. And if you don't understand figurative language, you're not going to understand any book you read. You're not going to understand everyday conversation. The White House said today, did the White House literally talk? Did that physical building talk? I've told you a million times, literally, you have to understand figures of speech. And the Bible is full of them. Proverbs, parables, synecdoche, metonymy, simile, metaphor, hyperbole, parallelism, symbolism. Not all prophecies are literal. Not, no one interprets the entire Bible, every passage in the Bible, literally. We do that, we interpret literally unless in the context we're told not to, like the book of Revelation, or if interpreting that literally... David reigning over Israel forever is absurd, would contradict what the Bible teaches. We have to know then it's not literal David. Premillennialists do not interpret every prophecy literally as they claim to be superior for doing that. They don't do that. They take a buffet-style approach to those prophecies, and they pick and choose as it's convenient. When it's convenient, they interpret literally. When it's not convenient, they interpret it figuratively. Here's the point. A prophecy doesn't have to be literally fulfilled for it to be actually fulfilled. We already saw the example of David reigning over Israel forever. That's not David, it's Christ. We could go through so many absurd and humorous prophecies where it's very abundantly clear and evident those prophecies are not literal. They're symbolic. They're looking to a, the substance, through the shadows. But I'll give you one more. John the Baptist, this prophecy that he would prepare the way of the Lord Make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. How many shovelfuls of dirt did John the Baptist turn over to fulfill that prophecy? When do we read about John the Baptist becoming a road construction worker to fulfill that prophecy, literally? He didn't. He preached a message to repent. And we, when we interpret figurative prophecies and passages literally, we misrepresent them. And we misinterpret them. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.22 of Christ, He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. Paul said the same thing. Peter preached the same thing in Acts 2. Sounds to me like Jesus is reigning on a throne right now. Hebrews 10.12, the Hebrew writer says of Christ, He sat down at the right hand of God. 1 Corinthians 15.24 and 25, Paul writes, Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign 
till he has put all enemies under his feet. Sounds to me like Christ is reigning on a throne over his kingdom, the church, right now. And when he's coming back, he's not coming back to establish something he established 2,000 years ago. He's coming back because it's over. He's coming back to end, not begin, a reign. And to insist that the kingdom is in the future and isn't present right now is to ignore a multitude of passages that make it clear that kingdom exists on earth right now in the form of the church. And Christ is reigning over His kingdom, the church of Christ, today, right now. Jesus said in His prayer to the Father in John 17, 4, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He accomplished exactly what He came to do. He didn't fail. He has nothing to come back to do on the earth. Notice in John 6, verse 15, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, He did what? He gladly accepted. That's what He was coming to do, according to Premillennialists. That would have been a great time. (laughs) He was not rejected. If He came to do what they wanted Him to do, even the disciples thought He was going to do, and set up a literal kingdom on the throne of David in Jerusalem and kick the Romans out, they would have never rejected Him. They would have accepted Him. And if they had accepted Him, He would have never gone to the cross. He would have never died for our sins. You see a problem in that? When they were going to make Him a physical king over a physical kingdom, what did He do? He departed. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. But Premillennius says, yes it is. If it were of this world, my servants would fight. Did Jesus lie to Pilate? Is the kingdom of this world or not? Incredibly, premillennialists would put God's kingdom and God's throne on earth when Jesus and God have made it clear it's in heaven. They have the Son of God ruling in Judea when the prophet Jeremiah said that no son of David could sit on that throne physically anymore. Notice Jeremiah 22.30, one of the powerful verses that refutes this idea of Christ reigning on the throne on earth. Speaking of Kaniah, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, the last king on the Davidic throne, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. You know where we're going with this. Guess who's a descendant of Kaniah? <laughs> Jesus Christ. According to this, he cannot sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Therefore, his throne must not be on earth. His throne must be in heaven. Zechariah 6, another Messianic prophecy that speaks of this branch. He shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on His throne. So He shall be a priest on His throne. The council of peace shall be between them both. It's another verse that I think powerfully refutes this idea. He's going to be priest and king simultaneously. But the Hebrew writer says, it's evident our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. He can't reign as a priest on earth because he's not from the tribe of Levi. This prophecy says that the Christ, the Messiah, would function as priest and king at the same time. But Jesus cannot do that on earth because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He cannot be priest on earth and king on earth at the same time. Therefore, his throne must not be on earth. His throne has to be in heaven. Listen, if Judaism and animal sacrifice are going to be restored and reinstituted, Christ's death, this meant nothing did nothing. This theory makes a mockery of that. That's why I can't say, oh, it's not a big deal. We're just nitpicking. Doctrine doesn't matter. 
And if he's not king and priest, if he's not a priest reigning on a throne right now, there's no blood being offered for our sins right now. That's a big problem. If he is not priest and king today right now, there is nothing to cover your sin right now. Acts 2, he said he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne with that purpose. Not the second coming. He was going to raise him up to sit on a throne when? At his resurrection, 2,000 years ago. And Christ has been reigning on that throne ever since. Revelation 3, verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Sounds to me like he's reigning over a throne. Past tense, sat down. Listen, if you want to be a premillennialist, you have to to do this. You have to stop Christ's priestly work. You have to knock Christ off His throne and take off His crown. You have to humble and humiliate Christ when God's exalted Him. Listen, He earned His crown at the cross. He earned His exaltation at the cross. And I'm not going to stand by silently and apathetically, like this doesn't matter and why do we have teaching this morning or today on premillennialism? Why are we making such a big deal over these doctrines? I'm not going to sit silently by while a theory or a doctrine attempts to do that very thing. Satan would love for us to do that in our life. To stop Christ's reign and His priestly work for us in our lives. Listen, He's reigning over His kingdom right now and you can be a part of that kingdom. That's the implication. That's why this matters and it's so important If you don't know there's a bus, and you need to be on the bus, and you need to stay on the bus, you're not gonna you're gonna miss the bus. That's the problem. Don't miss the kingdom. It's here. And Jesus said, if you want to enter that kingdom, if you want to see that kingdom, be born of water and the Spirit. And remain faithful as such. Last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. Whosoever will, whoever is thirsty, whoever desires, let him drink of the water of life freely. And if you need to respond to that invitation, let Christ reign in your life. Reign with Him in His kingdom, the church of Christ. He invites you to come as we stand and sing.